Hey everybody, welcome to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. I have the great privilege in my life to be invited into the boardrooms and basements of the world's greatest CEOs. And what I help people do is get ready for what's next. What's next in your life, your career, your company? How to build that bench for the succession plan to build an organization that can change the world. Everyone um, that I have the pleasure to, to chat with next uh, is a mentor, uh, an inspiration, uh, people who have the humanity to, to pay it forward, have impact on the community of employees that they touch. Um, and I, it's just such a privilege to call them my friends. Um, we're going to take a few moments uh, to share with you the, the journey of Aisha Evans, uh, Harry Kramer, Hubert Jolie, and Ordance Lejadil. And I think each of these people have, uh, are in a sense, very much role models um, in what we've been able to have the privilege to bring together in this community. Um, Hubert Jolie was the, the person who came into Best Buy after Carlson Companies to, to lead that company to an amazing uh, turnaround, become one of the great icons uh, of business leadership. And he's now at Harvard, uh, where he's helping CEOs become onboarded. Um, and uh, he's got an amazing book, The Heart of Business, which we have to put on our reading list, which is why I've included them here. Um, uh, we have with us uh, as well a series of authors throughout this organization uh, as the MG100 has been able to light people's lives up. Aisha, I wanted to start with you. And I thought perhaps it would be great to be um, sharing with them one of the great adventures you've just had. Um, what is very fresh now, you have throughout your life uh, been an innovator. From the, from the moment uh, you were born, I think you were an innovator. You, you're going to have to share a story in a moment from your time at Senegal when you actually hacked your dad's phone uh, so that you could continue to make calls. Um, I can't wait to be a writer in a Zooks vehicle. Aisha, could you maybe just start off with what you did? It's just been 30 days. Um, you, uh, you were able to sign up Jeff Bezos uh, for, to be your great partner uh, at Amazon um, and uh, to, to lead, in a sense, a revolution in safety um, and, and self-driving vehicles. Could you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll, we'll kick this off. Uh, first of all, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, so many friends, good to see you all. Um, yeah, um, I um, a couple of years ago decided to leave uh, sort of the, the normal corporate world, left Intel, uh, to go um, help lead a company and lead and serve a company called Zooks. And our basic uh, uh, philosophy is that uh, the model of uh, individually owned uh, cars, uh, especially in dense urban environment, that model, that model is breaking down. It's not sustainable from a safety standpoint. I mean, uh, just in the US, 40,000 uh, fatalities a year. It's not sustainable from uh, the environment. Uh, I think we, especially in five days, we won't be arguing about that anymore, or four days. And then uh, it's also like 30% of uh, the, uh, the pollution is generated by uh, individually owned car. We spend collectively 400 billion hours driving ourselves imagine if we could do something else with that time and then by the way it's just inefficient i mean when uh, you own a car uh, four percent of the time it's being used and 96 percent of the time it's uh, depreciating sitting 
and also uh, using space because you have to park it somewhere. So mm. when you set out cities over the next few years and how many more people will be in cities, I don't know about you. Not, I'm not in the mood to uh, redesign them to fully and totally. And so uh, we've created this uh, robo taxi which is uh, essentially almost like a, a moving uh, living room. It's not a concept car, as you saw, it drives. Uh, we really thought about the rider, not about the driver, but we use um, autonomous driving technology uh, for it to come, pick you up, drop you off, and, uh, and then go pick up the next passenger. It's electric and constantly moving picking up and dropping off. The other thing that's really uh, important is that we get a lot of time, uh, the question, why don't you just take a regular car and make it autonomous? Because a regular car was architected for a driver. When we went from horse and carriage to human driver and the uh, uh, combustion engine, we redesigned the car for the human. So if you start thinking about your cars today in terms of you, the human driver, you can see a windshield, mirrors, steering wheel, even the seating arrangement, right? The passengers are mostly sitting in the back so they don't distract you. And so mm. our view and our hypothesis is that if AI is going to drive and uh, reinvent really transportation, personal transportation to make it safer, cleaner, and more enjoyable for everyone, you have to redesign and re-architect the vehicle to make it easiest and safest for AI to drive. And that's the result. And now we're in testing on private and public road. We have to meet a very high safety bar. This is non-negotiable because we drive amongst human and that's what we're doing. And then we hope to be picking up people uh, very soon. It's amazing uh, to see this transformation going on that you're leading. And you were recruited to the company as a first-time CEO after being a technologist in, in many places around the world prior to this gig. Uh, and the technology was kind of underway for five years. Uh, in a sense, a, a founder departed the company. One of the themes that I find myself talking with CEOs all the time about is what was it like to be a first-time CEO? Uh, what were the skills you felt like you brought? Uh, and what do you wish you knew when, when you stepped into this role? Because it's just been about a year, right? Yeah, a couple of years now. So look, I mean, uh, I knew that uh, I, I knew how to take a uh, um, so a product that has hardware and software integrated and help take it to market and to scale and sort of come out of the prototyping sort of garage operation startup to starting to set up a machine. I mean, this is a, you know, <laughs> 2,500 kilogram machine that is running around with no human controls, right? So it's got to yeah. do the right thing. And so I knew I had those skills. I knew I had the leadership skills. I mean, Lord knows by this time between Marshall, you and everybody else in uh, MG100, if my leadership skills are not improving, we have a problem. And <laughs> I knew also that I, uh, I could partner with a founder. Founders are a different breed. Uh, shall we say, especially in the Valley. And so those are the things that I knew. Uh, I also knew I was ready for an mm -hmm. advantage something different for something that if it worked out great if it didn't work out i was still going to learn something and sort of make progress on my my own personal journey so those are the things that i knew what i didn't know is that all of the things that i complained about at intel and that i was a rebel against i now needed to put them in place at this company <laughs> I was always at Intel going, there's too much process, finance and legal have too much power. What is this? Why do we have so many meetings? What do you mean I have to talk to somebody to convince them? Well, it turns out that that's exactly what I had to come put in place. You have to build a company. Mm. Uh, a lot of, especially in Silicon Valley, there are a lot of great technology places and teams, but building a company and building something that's sustainable and that really right. grows 
easy. And so that's what I didn't know. <laughs> mm. Well, you couldn't have, I guess, imagined when you were growing up in Senegal and uh, hacking your dad's phone. Could you tell us that story about what was really showing a little bit of evidence that you might go on to become a technologist um, and whatever lessons that you might have gathered there that bring your incredible sense of humanity and caring and compassion to both technology and frankly, Silicon Valley, uh, where it's so desperately needed, perhaps more, more now uh, than ever. Sure. Uh, so uh, very um, succinctly, I grew up between Senegal and France. My dad was a telecommunication executive in France. And so that's why I went to school. But literally every vacation, I went back to Senegal. And I've, I've, I was bouncing between the two worlds. And I could already see the difference of when you have technology, what it does for people and society, because I was seeing it, you know, every other vacation. And then, mm. uh, then we had landlines. Uh, I basically, when I was in Senegal, I wanted to be uh, in touch with my friends in Paris. And when I was in Paris, uh, the reverse. And so uh, we had, very, back then it was rotary phones. I'm dating myself. And um, <laughs> my dad got tired of the phone bills. Uh, remember, it used to be very expensive to call people. And so he put a little lock, like a physical lock so that you couldn't move the rotary thing to make a phone call. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. How am I going to solve this? And then I noticed the two little clicks that sit right under the handset. And I was like, oh, okay, this is just bits basically and beeps. And so I would take the phone number of my friends, whether I was in Senegal or whether I was in, um, in France, and I would turn it into clicks and beeps. And I would just use my finger on top of the little white things and dial the phone number. Of course, my dad is like, I don't understand. Like, why are we still getting these phone bills? First of all, he could afford them. And second of all, I was like, eh, I don't know. But that was sort of my first like, huh, technology leads to knowledge, leads to better, better serving people, serving society. And, and you, can, you, can, you don't have to just be a geek. You can be a geek in with a purpose and in service of. Mm. You've been a great mentor and coach to others. You're the coaching leader, uh, a person who sees herself as, as one who can really light up and, and find the spark uh, in people. What, what's your view about coaching uh, and, and that role for the chief executive? Well, I think that um, uh, one of the most important thing is um, the area, the, the, the era of command and control and you being the smartest people is actually over. Mm. Uh, really about, uh, and, and thank you to you, Marshall, Alan, so many of you on, uh, on this call for helping me on that journey. You, you get to where you are very often by being the best at the trade. So for me, I was an engineer, I was a chip designer, I was in wireless technology, remember the telephone? And so that's how I got there. And there's a certain element of unconscious competition of I'm going to be the best in this room and I'm going to do and I'm going to show and what have you. And being a woman and also a woman of color, I'm sure that also played a role. I'm going to show you. Well, then you get in this role and it's like, I will never forget Marshall's like, all right, so now. We're trying to make the team better or we're trying to make you better? Like, because uh, you alone can't do much. And that transition from in service of the team and enabling the team and understanding that the collective output is actually your job as opposed mm. to your individual output and being comfortable around that and being happy about that and knowing like to hush, let the team do 
uh, ask questions instead of telling. Uh, mm. By the way, when they make a mistake, don't freak out because who wants to work for somebody who freaks out when there's a mistake? And that transition was a, a very difficult one, but one that really I'm happy I went through. And it's uh, back to Faze's point earlier. You think that all of this benefits you at work and it ends up benefiting you at home too. Because as my daughter says, you're not, this is not Intel, this is not Zooks, you're not the boss of this family. Well, what, what is going on here? And so that's been the biggest transition for me. Well, uh, Aisha, you're uh, such a great mentor to the people that you touch, all of us, including neighbors like me uh, and friends uh, and family members. So, so thank you for making it personal uh, the way you touch. I think leadership is more personal than ever. So I'm so grateful to you. Um, I'd love to introduce everyone to Hubert Jolie. Um, Hubert uh, really had a huge impact on transforming a company that everyone thought might be headed down a path that would make it very difficult to see continued growth. He'd come from Carlson Companies and, and done an amazing job there, one of the great leading CEOs. And, and Hubert, I thought maybe I would love to start off with this maybe the same question that I offered Aisha, a theme that I want to go through all of this conversation about, which has to do with what was it like uh, the first time? What do you wish you knew? And now that you've made a transition beyond Best Buy, you're now starting to teach this stuff. Uh, and there's nothing like having to show up teaching at Harvard uh, to maybe be a little bit challenged to be clear about how to express these, these concepts. Uh, maybe we start there. Thank you, Mark, and, and hello, everyone. Uh, when I read Marshall's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Marshall, you remember that uh, out of the 20 quirks of successful people, I had 13 out of them, right? So I was absolutely ready for the big Marshall intervention, being the smartest person in the room, adding too much value uh, was uh, where, where some of the things uh, that uh, I was suffering from. And, you know, it's the, it's the power of the team. So, you know, to talk about uh, the journey, three months after I joined Best Buy, I told our team uh, in Minneapolis, look, uh, this turnaround is going to be difficult, right? That means mm. all of us need to be the best leaders we can be. And that starts with me. And so I have a coach. His name is Marshall. He's going to come and ask you how, you know, uh, is Hubert doing? What can he uh, do better? And, of course, Marshall, you did this. Uh, got the feedback. I thank my team for all the positive feedbacks. I, I had learned from Marshall this idea of feed forward, right? I get to decide what I want to get better at. And even that, I'll, I'll say this, this was excruciating pain to have to tell my team that I needed to get better at something. Oh my God, you know? But I, I shared that with them and I said, look, I'm going to ask you for advice uh, and follow up with each of you. And then three or four months later, ask you how I'm doing. And so being on this journey of getting better was absolutely essential. And the impact it had on others was significant, right? Mm. Marshall, after that, it made it clear that it was okay for every leader to be working on something. So if you run into an executive at Best Buy, you can ask them, what are you working on, right? And everybody's got a coach and is working uh, on that. And it's, it's been a long journey for me to learn exactly what Asha was saying, right? To go from uh, solving everything to creating an environment in which others can flourish and be successful. So moving my mind and my heart and my soul to problem solving and logic to creating the right environment for others. And that's a game changer. 
when you think about how you've expressed that in the book, the, the heart of business, uh, what would be a, a few maybe top three items that you'd give to that newcomer into the office who's starting to find their way in addition to being that mentor and coach and and role modeling the fact that you have both the audacity to, to really want to lead the company towards growth but this incredible humility to know you can't do that without everyone signing up for their own part of the journey i think mark it starts with purpose and meaning and being clear about why do we work why are we working right in many cultures work can be seen as a curse a punishment because some guy may, you know, make some, did something wrong in paradise, mm. or something to do so that we can do something else. Or in contrast, we can see it as part of our search for meaning, and what uh, is going is gives meaning to our life. So that's the first thing. And in fact, in the interview, recruiting interviews, here's a very practical uh, uh, tip. When I was interviewed, Mark, for the CEO job at Carlson, Madeline Carlson Nelson, the daughter of the founder. Uh, on the eight-hour interview that uh, I had on a plane coming back from Paris to Minneapolis. She wow. Asked, <laughs> that was a long interview. She asked me a question, which is, Bear, tell me about your soul. Tell me mm. about your soul. Who mm. asked this question, right? We're supposed to interview about experience, expertise, skills, motivation. And it's such a great question. So now when I do recruiting interviews or promotions or get, want to get to know people, ask them, what drives you? What's your engine in life, right? And who are you serving? What are you trying to accomplish? I told all of the officers at Best Buy, you know, if you're trying to serve yourself or your boss or me as the CEO, as Alan would say, it's okay. I don't have a problem with that. No problem. Except you cannot work here. You can yeah. be promoted to being a Best Buy <laughs> customer, which is a very exciting thing, but you can't work here. On the other hand, if you're here to serve others, then we can talk about this. So, you know, we've been very clear at Best Buy about what we've called the five Bs of purposeful leadership. Be clear about your purpose. Be clear about the purpose of people around you and how it all connects with the purpose of the corporation. Be clear about who you serve, as I just mentioned. Be clear about your role, which is not to be the smartest person in the, in the room, but uh, somebody who creates the right environment. As Harry would say, be a values-driven leader. And then be an authentic leader, somebody who is vulnerable, is able to build human uh, connections, not being afraid of uh, saying, you know, my name is Hubert and I need help. Just another thing I learned from uh, Marshall. So these are mm. some that we've worked on. And if you work on these things, that's how you can unleash human magic. Right? Strategy at the end of the day is not that difficult, right? But how do you mobilize 125,000 employees at Best Buy to make sure that every day, on their own, right, through intrinsic motivators, they're eager to be the best version of themselves and do extraordinary things for their colleagues, for their customers, for and for the community around them. And that's what the, the book, at the end of the day, the book is about purpose, but it's about how do you unleash human magic? What are the ingredients of that? And how mm. so much of what I had learned at business school or at McKinsey or in my early years as an executive is either wrong, dated, or incomplete. And so part of what we, uh, of my journey today is how, how do we learn these new behaviors and these new skills to unleash human magic? That's what the book is about. Well, that unleashing of human magic, uh, you talk about it eloquently. I can say, I think all those that you touch have been feeling it. And I wanna show a quick picture here of uh, 
uh, one of those executives that you invested in, who uh, I think perhaps serves all of the criteria that you're describing. Could you say a little bit about her growth uh, to take your place? I mean, you're big shoes to fill uh, as chief executive, not a trivial thing, especially after you had been uh, able to, to bring this company to success when it wasn't even so certain itself when, when you stepped into the job. Could you talk a little bit about sure, uh, that process? To, happy to, because Corey is such a, an amazing leader. So about succession planning, one of the things, by the way, we start with is as important as succession planning is uh, is choosing your predecessor. I had done well with that because you want to have a good contrast with your predecessor. Corey, I think you're arguing, maybe didn't do such a good job with that. So, uh, But succession planning. I think a better concept than succession planning is executive leadership development. Because succession planning you know, is focused on the goal on when the CEO is going to leave and who is going to win the race. So it's very much a, a zero-sum game, um, not an almost poisonous concept. Whereas executive development is very positive, right? Everybody wants to grow. And so at Best Buy, maybe four or five years ago, we really put a focus on everybody in the executive team, self-included, you know, renewing our efforts towards uh, executive uh, development. Uh, and the approach there was uh, really a... Um, self-directed approach. So we use 360, we use coaches. But one of the things, for example, I stopped doing, Mark, was I stopped evaluating my direct reports. You know this process where you give grades yeah. to people and you tell them, these are the things you're doing well, these are the things you right. need to work on. Who am I to judge them? Right? Much, much better if the executive can say, based on the 360, the coaching and so forth, these are the things that are going well. These, these are the things I'm not so happy about. These are the things that I'd like to get better at. And this is my plan to get better at this. And in the conversation with me, my value added is to say, what do you need from me? How can I be helpful? As opposed to judging. And that makes it an incredibly uh, positive experience uh, and, and focuses the leader on, you know, this idea of, of, of supporting and, and, and Corey, you know, it's so let me pause here for a second because we, we need to. So I'm so proud, of course, that my successor is a woman, young woman. Uh, you know, she's 44, 45, uh, two wonderful kids. Initially, she didn't want to do it. Right. And as leaders and Sally's on the call and, and Sally, as you know, we've distributed your book to all of the people manager at, uh, at Best Buy, How Women Rise. So one of the things that I learned from uh, reading the book Sally's book and Marshall's book, How Women Rise, is that uh, if a boy is 80% ready for a promotion, the boy will say, oh, I'm ready. Oh, believe me. If a woman is 150% ready for a promotion, most women will say, oh, I'm not so sure. You know, I first need to perfect what I'm doing. And plus, I'm not so sure I want to do this. And so as leaders of both boys and women, uh, we need to be aware of this and not be afraid to put our thumb on the scale. So with Corey, it was then a matter of having the conversation. So Corey, tell me why you don't want the job. And Corey had seven reasons why she didn't want a job, maybe two why she might want to have the job. And um, we had dinner. We had a real good dialogue. Uh, I gave her the time to think this through when the time had come that I was going to pass the baton. 
she consulted with a number of leaders, with her family, with her personal board of director. And then she came back and said, no, I actually want to do this. And so it's a big responsibility for us as leaders and whether it's on gender or ethnic diversity or any other dimension of diversity, being able to decipher the nuances so that we can do a good job of allowing everyone to uh, to blossom and have the opportunity, you know, for the you know the best leader to get the uh, the, the job. And for me personally, you know, this may be the mo- the thing I'm the most proud of at Best Buy is how this how well the succession has gone, and and now she's mm-hmm. leading from a place of purpose and, and humanity. And you know, in my next life, I want to come back and be just like her. Mm. Well, it's it's inspiring to see how you really found a voice in her that was uniquely her own, um, that enabled her to lead. You had all the values that you were bringing to the work that you've done throughout. You role modeled the this idea of uh, wanting to grow and having everyone feel safe, sharing that as a vulnerability. Uh, and she's bringing this new special blend uh, for this next phase of the race. So I can't think of anything more rewarding than to see the people on your team uh, and the people in your life, uh, whether it's uh, the, the, the people that you're betting on to take your, your place. You've, you've done an amazing job there. And I know that now you are, you're doing some teaching uh, at Harvard and you are uh, also coaching and that you have a coaching partner that I want to take some time here to meet. And it, I'm so impressed that you actually have her book in addition to yours uh, right there. <laughs> We're talking about. This is the best. This is the highest rated leadership book on Amazon. Absolutely. And, and, and boy, does she keep the two, the two of you really are in alignment around how you bring that alignment to the, the, the leaders you serve. Can, let's give a big round of applause to, to Aisha and to Hubert for sharing a little bit today. And I hope you get to meet them personally when we actually convene as human beings again. We're actually going to see each other this year uh, and get to hug each other. We are so ready for that. So in that regard, uh, if you could talk a little bit about how uh, the principles that uh, we were just hearing from those two other CEOs um, of alignment, uh, just a, a couple of tips perhaps for us as coaches to think about uh, how would be, uh, we would be both most served in, in being able to apply those, those principles. What would be your Saturday morning inside baseball from what you just heard? Oh, first, uh, I just want to congratulate and thank you, everyone. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone, for this absolutely great um, community, I would say family. So thank you for that. Congratulations to um, all of you about the, the books, what you are doing in the world, and uh, Aisha, and, and of course, Hubert, uh, for what you, you're doing today. So I, I cannot agree more with Aisha and Uber on, on you know the leadership um, uh, way to uh, to do things. I would just add something. Corey, you know, Uber was talking about just before, has also a very very good husband, and I think it's very important. In the, yeah, no, this is very important. I think you know. Oh, so oh, I didn't get the connection here a moment ago. If, if people weren't here, uh, you're actually not only business partners. You 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 met in the MG100 and uh, serendipity struck, and and you were getting him feed forward, and and he proposed. <laughs> okay, yes, <laughs> something like that. So everything you know is because of Marshall, of course. So 
I'm so grateful for that also. So we, yeah, exactly. When when we we met, we just align ourselves with with that and with um, with our purpose and uh, you know the what we want to do in life. So um, yeah, so means that I don't know. So 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 inside for 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 the leader today, I think I would say uh, the first thing is um, take care of yourself, and nobody is thinking about that. And uh, you know you are all doing great job, but you don't take care of yourself enough because it's not, you know, a spring, it's going to be a long-term um, course. So I think the, this is very important to, to, to try to pause, uh, uh, to pause the button, uh, the pause button, to push the pause button and reflect for a while and think about what kind of leader you want to be. How do you want to, re to be remembered and not only in this time of crisis, but as a leader, what drives you? What is important for you? What are your values? Um, really, and how do you want to lead? You know, this is something very important. And uh, to take time to reflect on that and go back to yourself, uh, it's very important. We are in the middle of a storm. And in this storm, we have to keep our true north. So think about it. You know, what is your true notes? What, what do you really want to do? So I think mm -hmm. I will begin by that. And after I will, I will do things like refuel, find your own way to refuel, to get energy back. Because, you know, the Zoom, the, you know, the, the, the company, driving a company and doing all that, it's so complicated today and uh, that you really need to take care of yourself and go, and take back you know, some uh, some energy every day every moment uh, so i can recommend a routine for example you know in the morning so what are you doing to get your energy and and having uh, a space where you don't think where yeah. you know me meditate can we say but if you don't want to meditate, doesn't matter. It's just being at the present moment. Just try to clean your your brain time to time, and just stop. You know, stop for a while and just breathe, breathe three times. And you know, one of my clients is is for example is doing something very simple. Every day uh, is for ten minutes is looking at the windows and take the sun and have a coffee, mm -hmm. and try to not think about anything. So things like that, very you know, very very easy, and um, and of course, don't be afraid of your uh, vulnerability and of your emotions. You know, sharing yeah. your emotions is something very important. Even you know, if of course we didn't we didn't know, as as Aisha or Iber said, or, or all you, everybody is listening. Um, we are not we were not educated to do that to mm -hmm. show our emotion to you know and as 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 you know as a leader you had to have all the answers no today you don't have to have the, all the answers so you, you can say i know what i know i don't know what i don't know we are all you know recreating reimagining you know the world and the way to lead and more mm -hmm. than ever you have to be you know this human being uh, connecting with the people you are working with so it's I a think. It, 
It's such an incredible point that you're making. I think that it's easy, especially in these times of intensity of uh, being on Zoom and, and being disconnected uh, with the full body language and, and the emotional connection that you get by being in person, it has exacerbated that. And, and you've made a brilliant point. I recommend all of you read uh, Hortense's book about alignment to, to really reconnect with that sense of soul and spirit as many of you practice and help as both healers and as people who are helping people get connected with their emotions. Because of course, as leaders, uh, we're showing up in places where people are watching us under a microscope, how our tone uh, and our capacity to be refreshed so that we can be alive and and energetic in those connections is, is so important. So give Hortense a big round of applause. Thank you and, and, and read both of those books. Those are, those are must reads. And what we're talking about here are values um, and, a, and a person who's inspired us all around values-based leadership um, is, is Harry Kramer. Um, Harry and uh, Aisha and I were together at the last physical meeting that I did uh, in a large group setting for the conference board. That was a social meeting. You were kind enough to come. We all didn't realize we were risking life and limb. We were touching elbows. We didn't know about wearing masks. Uh, and uh, Harry and Aisha and uh, Benita Thompson and I were uh, there at the conference board. And you were talking about uh, what is now, after several books, what you've been evolving as uh, as a former chief executive for many, many years at Baxter and now as the most popular uh, professor uh, talking about this topic. Uh, and uh, I thought that you might share with us a little bit, Harry, this latest book that you're writing is very much about this idea of values-based leadership. And it has this this wonderful premise that you're offering everyone in terms of some guideposts that to me just feels so incredibly practical and accessible. Yeah, well, it's it's just great to be with you, Mark, as always. And, and I think that was the last time I was on an airplane. When I right, that we were all out, yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely, absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, and, and again, I think with this group, it's so much more obvious to everybody here than all the people that we're, we're trying to touch. and. And uh, Paul Corona, who works so closely with me at Kellogg, we talk about this a, a lot, Mark, that, you know, we talk about how, how can we truly become value-based leaders? How, how can we do the, some of the things Lieber talked about uh, and that he did at Best Buy and now he's trying to do at Harvard? And sort of this concept of how do you be a great leader? How do you lead an organization? But what a lot of the students at Kellogg started to ask, Mark, that you and I talked about was, well, this is great, but, but how do you live a value-based life? How do, you, how do you really do that? And it's so clear to me, as busy as we all are, and with as many things as we all have to do, all, all 200 folks on this, is we, we just go faster and faster, right? Uh, and then I always tease with these devices, Blackberries, Blueberries, phones, I, we can just go faster and faster, and we just go through this multitasking. And the thing I, I think that becomes so important is to take a little bit of time, and we'll all do it in our own different ways, but to turn off the noise, turn off the gadgets, and ask yourself some of those questions that I think came up early this morning. You know, what are my values? What is my purpose? You know, what am I called to do the blink of an eye that, that we're on this earth? And Marshall talks a lot about that. And that led to this thought of, I talk about this number, uh, Mark, about uh, 168. And people say, well, why is that such an important number? And I'll say, well, when you're having a really bad week, Mark, and you're just racing all over, how are you doing? Well, it's, it's 24-7. But being a math major, I say, I think if you multiply it, it's 168. And the fact that we all have 168 hours a week, 
That's what you got. And based on that, what really is important to you? And if you look at the difference between, if we're honest, the difference between what we say is important and what we're actually doing, there seems to be this big difference between the two. And I often think, we often hear this, Mark, of people that will come up to any one of us and say, well, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm having trouble balancing my life. And I actually realize the great majority of people that are having trouble balancing their life haven't been self-reflective enough to figure out, what am I trying to balance? Because if you haven't figured out how important, whatever it is, it's going to be different for each person, but how important is your partner? How important is your faith? How important is your health? If, if you haven't thought about it, it's, it's really hard to do. And what I find fascinating, and I tease about this a lot, Mark, there's this concept, in fact, people can wave their hands if they've heard it. There's this concept I tease about called work-life balance, right? How many people have heard this, work-life balance? And I always find it interesting, Mark, maybe it's my math background. I always say, all right, work-life balance. You're either working or you're living. Now, some of us on this call are working enough. If that's not part of living, that could be a problem. So instead of talking about work-life balance, I spend a lot of time trying to talk about life balance. How are you trying to live, your, balance your life? What are you really trying to do? And I know, Mark, in, in all the discussions you and I have had, you think a lot about this because if leaders aren't taking care of their health, if they're not taking care of the people that matter to them, you know, they're going to, you know, 45 years old, they're going to be in a nursing home. I mean, it's, uh, they're just going to flame, flame out. You know, the, you'll have a chance to hear more from Harry tomorrow. He's going to take a deep dive in this because it's so critically important to all of us, I think, right now, and the people that we're trying to serve, that we're trying to support, and, and for our own lives and, and sanity ourselves. Harry, I'd love to ask for you to, to weigh in on this in terms of the dimension of, of an aspect of this conversation that, that never gets written about, which to me is there are many stakeholders in the life of a chief executive officer. Uh, and some of them are very obvious in terms of customers and employees and perhaps even vendors and, and regulators and community operators and, and Wall Street. And, and we were talking about this as well when we were together at the conference board. There's also this thing known as the board. Uh, uh, an entity of people who have great authority who will be helping ratify the choice you've made for your the person who is going to be filling your shoes, um, who may be unknown to them, uh, with whom you may need to have a relationship. Could you talk a little bit about the dy that dynamic of the chief executive with the board and, and where the authority is in that relationship or what tips you'd give this crew? I'm smiling about this one because people like Uber and I could talk about this for, for hours. But yes. uh, anytime I'm serious, I, as you know, Mark, I try to have a sense of humor. And whenever I get together with somebody who's a vice president or a president uh, or about to become a CEO, I try to sit down with them and say, there are two things, uh, for, for gentlemen or, or miss, that you, you ought to be aware of. Number one, every job you've ever been in to this point in your life, you've had one boss. And that one boss usually has been in your job or is viewed as somebody who knows a lot about your job, or they probably wouldn't be your boss. Now, one mm. day, two things happen, I try to explain to these folks. Number one, you go from one boss to potentially 15 bosses, okay? <laughs> okay, that's, that's the first thing, okay? And second mm. of all, second of all, most of these people not only have not been in your job, they haven't even been in your industry, okay? But most of them have a lot of thoughts, right? So one of the fellows I always used to tease at Baxter, right? global healthcare company, everything else. One of the folks on my board, very bright guy, was uh, was uh, was Fred, the, the, uh, the CEO of McDonald's, okay? Now, 
phenomenal guy. He invented the Big Mac, okay? Uh, did not know a whole lot about healthcare, okay? Now, figuring out how you're going to deal with this is because, as Martin and I would tease about, they are your bosses, okay? They will decide whether you're in that job or not, all right? So yes. how do you, in managing a global company, managing all the things you got to deal with, also realize that these folks are your boss? And I think that ability to realize, as you said, Mark, building the relationships, not trying to feel like you're the smartest guy in the room, viewing these people as they're representing the shareholders and they can help you. This is not like, well, how do I how do I jam something past these guys? No, you're paying these guys several hundred thousand dollars each a year. Well, let's use these people, right? Or as I used to tease folks, someone said, well, uh, do we have to run this by the board? And I think to myself, Marshall, uh, Mark, if I can't convince these 12 people that this makes sense, you know what? Maybe it doesn't make sense. <laughs> uh, again, I always I always say most of this stuff, uh, Mark, is common sense. The problem, as somebody said earlier, common sense is not common. It feels like a real unlock for me to hear you describe this because each of the people who is recruited to the board usually has a deep subject matter expertise, that they came from a field or an industry that might be able to contribute experience and technique uh, and perhaps even management or strategy, but most cases not in the industry. And that was actually the value of it. So this is a place where there should be great diversity of thought, diversity of converse, uh, conversations. Um, and as, as you said, if you can't recruit that group, that ends up being a very big deal for whether we're really onto something that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Could you amplify around how we get that group to know the person who you're really working with or the people that you're grooming for that new role to, to fill your show, show, shoes uh, as you think about that transition? How, how do you get them connected uh, with the future leadership of the organization? Super, Mark. Uh, and I would say maybe a little bit of exaggeration, but I think 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the last thing a CEO would want to do is spend a lot of time bringing in the rest of the management team because some right. of these don't have what I like to call true self-confidence. And I think what's happened, particularly in the last 10 years, is that CEOs realize, wait a minute, what's your primary responsibility as a CEO? To develop the next generation of people. You know, Hubert talked about that before. That's your central job. And how can you do that if you're not giving these people exposure? So when all of the CEOs on most of the boards I'm on now, we say, you know what? During the committee meetings, during the dinners, bring your top 10, 12 people so that the board gets to know each one of them personally, and they get to know what it's like to operate with a board. And that relationship of let's work together to figure out who should be the next CEO, who should be the next CFO, the next CMO, and getting that exposure and relationships has an enormous impact if, if your goal is to do the right thing. How do you decide when to leave? I mean, what, one of the things that has been really the hallmark of so many high achievers um, is to get a sense of self and, and what's next. And it's, it's not easy to do because you may have pointed your life in a particular direction. As you said, you've been value-based. You've been living, let's say you've had the, the privilege and, and the blessing of having the epiphany that you're sharing with everybody about living your values the whole way. And yet there's not just one life or one career uh, or one way to contribute uh, to that life. But what would be a, a hint for us to think about as we're coaching people to help define what's next and, and the experiences you've had now with the enthusiasm, the excitement and the incredible contribution you're making as a teacher after being a CEO? Well, you know, it's it's really fun, fun, Mark. One of the pieces of advice I got when I was very young, actually, was from my grandfather, who said, you know, Harry, you may be blessed, 
you may do well, but he said, never let your identity be your job description. Never mm. allow that. Because once it does, and you get to a job like this, oh my goodness, how, how will I explain to people I go to a party and I'm not the CEO of $12 billion Baxter? And, and, and my wife always said to me, Harry, I'm glad you're promoted. It's great you're becoming a vice president. Are you still going to be Harry or are you going to become something else? And so I never, if I, to be honest with you, Mark, if I got an airplane with you in Chicago and we were going to San Francisco, you would know, well, Harry lives in Evanston or Wilmette. Uh, he's got five kids. Uh, he's been married for 35 years. And I, I, you may hear that I work for Baxter, but the chance of you knowing I was the CFO or the CEO, there'd be no reason to tell you that. Okay. Number one. Number two, I'm of a belief, and there are some exceptions, Mark. You know there's exceptions. But my kind of view is if you've been in the job, I don't know, seven, eight years or whatever, maybe 10, hopefully you've done a lot of the stuff you really think that ought to be done. In fact, I would tease people, if you haven't done it in seven or eight years, maybe you ought to give somebody else a shot, okay? Now, if you happen to be the second coming and, you know, uh, of course, if you're the second coming, I don't know how it should take you more than eight years to do it, but that's my own personal <laughs> I always say, I always say uh, Mark, no answers, opinions. Uh, so after, after, for me, after seven years, it was like, you know what? I, I don't, I've done an awful lot. And, you know, maybe there are other people that could, could do as, a, as good a job or maybe actually a much better job than me. But I, I think an awful lot of it, Chief, gets tied in what we talked about in this genuine humility. If it's all about you and you forget, you forget where you came from, and you don't realize they're gifts and you've been lucky, you can actually uh, fall into it. And that's why I love that simple thought process of what is leadership? It's the ability to relate and influence people. And I, I tease people, I did this last night in the class, Mark. I always tell, uh, I say to the group, uh, do you really want to be a great leader? They raise their hand. Do you want to be a, do you think you influence people really well? They raise their hand. I said, don't raise your hand this time. How many of you, when you walk into the building, know the name of the receptionist? How many of you know the people in the cafeteria, um, whether or not of the maintenance guy? Because if you don't know that and you don't sit with them when you walk into the cafeteria, you're not going to relate that well to people. And I don't think, but part of that is you never forget where you came from. And if, and unfortunately, as you all know, Mark, you know, an awful lot of these people, there is this tendency, enough people tell you how great you are, you start to believe it. And I think that's where the whole thing falls apart. Well, I'd love to believe. I think everybody who's listening to you, who's privileged to be in your classroom, who had the opportunity to be touched by you as managers in at Baxter and, and, and everyone in your, your community in life now, I think we'd all say you're pretty great. Can we give him a big round of applause? Um, and, and what's so beautiful about that is that you pay that greatness forward with humility and community and, and, and making other people feel that they can unlock their voice uh, for greatness as well. So. Uh, that, that to me is genius of the end, man. Really very grateful for us uh, to have the opportunity to have you in our friendship circle and family. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. And please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.